Amen. I think we can sing that song all day and not truly feel the proper appreciation that we should. Jesus indeed paid it all. Uh, this morning, to that theme, we're going to be looking at uh, one verse, one verse this morning from 2 Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5, so I ask that you would, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, if you need a Bible from, uh, there's a, should be a Bible in a seat in front of you, 2 Kings chapter 5, we'll be looking at verse number 1. And this morning, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse number 1, in a sermon that I've titled, Helplessly Hopeful. Helplessly Hopeful. We have dedicated some time looking at the life and ministry of prophet by the name of Elisha. And this morning, we're actually going to focus our attention on someone other than the prophet. Having closed out chapter 4, we move into chapter 5, and we're introduced to a man here in verse number 1 who will have a very unique encounter with the prophet Elisha, a man by the name of Naaman. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Naaman was a leper. He had leprosy. And he goes through this incredible encounter where God allows him to be healed, and the healing of Naaman Honestly, when we think about it, it's probably what the prophet Elisha is best known for. It's one of the, the biggest miracles that is done in his ministry. And it's truly an incredible miracle. And the way the Lord worked throughout the entire encounter is awesome. But we're not even going to get to the miracle this morning. We're just going to focus on getting to know the man Naaman. I'd like to draw your attention specifically to the condition of Naaman that required the miracle in the first place. Naaman's condition offers, I believe, a good picture of the sinner's condition before God. There was nothing that Naaman could do to bring his healing on himself. There was no medicine that he could take to cure his condition. He was hopelessly left waiting for this wretched disease of leprosy to kill him. He would be forced to come to the end of himself and realize that if anything was going to be done, if he was ever going to be healed from this, it would have to come from God because it wasn't coming from any modern medicine. It wasn't coming from any work or anything that he was going to do on his own. And Romans 15 verse number 4 tells us, it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. God has given us this account here in 2 Kings chapter 5 for our benefit. He's given it to us that we might understand the reality of our sinful condition before him and the only means by which any of us are ever going to be saved. Throughout scripture, we get various pictures of sin as well as God's salvation. We see it in Noah and his family being spared and being preserved in the ark as the rest of the world was swept away in their wickedness by the flood that God sent. We see it with the Israelites in Egypt as they sacrificed the Paschal lamb and then applied the blood of that lamb to the doorpost, securing the angel of death, passing over their homes and not killing the firstborn. We see it with the healing brought forth by the look of faith at the brazen serpent on the pole 
when Moses was leading the children of Israel. And here in 2 Kings chapter 5, we see another picture that points us to the seriousness of sin as well as the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And before we get into the spiritual meaning of this encounter, there are a few details that are worth pointing out and mentioning with regards to Naaman himself. And look at what it says here in verse number 1 of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5 verse 1 reads, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Now this verse seems to almost read as a resume, especially the first part. You're getting all these lists of different things that Naaman has done, how great he is, how much he's achieved. And I'll be honest, it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's pretty significant to have your name written on the page of Scripture and next to that, have it printed that you were a great man, that you were a mighty man in valor, that you were able to do all these great things. There are many in Scripture, not many in Scripture, who have even one of these things said about them, much less all of them. So this says something about this guy Naaman. But the Lord makes sure to teach us a lesson in this, for right in the middle of this verse, we see this. It says, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. There's no success in any area of life that will be, that will be seen unless it is from the Lord. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse number 23. Jeremiah 10 verse 23 says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. The idea is, regardless of who you are, whatever success you see is only seen because God has granted you that success. We're also told in Psalm 127 and verse number 1, Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. God is the only one to allow anyone to have success. But God is also completely sovereign over the instruments and the means by which he carries out his purposes, whether that comes through blessing or we see it also in judgment. Therefore, as we consider Naaman, it wasn't because he was a good man that God would bring deliverance to Syria through him and allowed his military campaigns to be victorious. Later on in 2 Kings chapter 5, which we're not even going to get to here this morning, later on you actually find out that Naaman is an idol worshiper. If you just jump down to what it says in verse number 18, it says, In this thing the Lord... Pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow down myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. This is Naaman speaking. He's expressing to the prophet that he's an idol worshiper. He's not worshiping God. And so this is even more significant for us to read in verse number one when we're learning all about Naaman and getting his resume. He's done all these great things. He's a good man in the eyes of his master. He's been successful in military campaigns. He's a mighty man in valor. God is the one who has given him success. An idolater has been permitted by God to be successful. How incredible to think about. On top of that, Naaman wasn't only a stranger and an enemy of God, 
the Bible goes on to say he is a leper, which meant that he was ceremonially unclean and shut out according to the Mosaic law. Now, he's not Israelite. Naming it, we're told, is Assyrian. But still, he was a leper. And what we see is that God does what he pleases. He works with whomever he chooses. God will make use of the righteous as well as of the wicked. And certainly a lesson that many could stand to learn today. There are plenty of unrighteous people today who are experiencing success in number of areas in this life and they attribute that success to God showing his favor upon them. When in reality, it could very well be that God is simply allowing their success for this time while he's actually doing something else and maybe even preparing their judgment. Temporary success is far from being a sign of God's favor. Every one of us, whether you realize it or accept it, every single one of us are all under God's rule and reign. He is the Lord of all creation, which means we all operate, we all breathe the air that he has supplied. He will do as he pleases with whom he pleases in the political realm, in the military realm, as well as in the church. So be mindful of how each of us are looking at success. There is so much that will be discussed about this 10th miracle that we're going to see here in the prophet Elisha. But before we even get into those specifics, I want to first identify, first of all, the subject of the miracle. The subject of the miracle. Look again at what it says there in verse number one. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. He's the one in charge, Naaman is, of the king's army. He was captain of the host of the king of Syria. He, the Bible here, in this one verse, tells us six things right off the bat that we can learn about Naaman. Now you're going to go back and you're going to see if you can figure out all six of them. They're there, I'll point them out to you. Six things right now about Naaman. First, it says he's the captain of the host of the king of Syria. He is the one who is in charge of the king's army. He is the commander-in-chief under the king. Now, we don't know how he achieved this position, whether he started from the bottom and just gradually worked his way up, whether it's, there was a massive promotion that he received after some heroic effort in some sort of battle. Either way, Naaman is at the top when it comes to the positions in the army. He's the captain of the host of the king of Syria. Secondly, we see that he's a great man with his master, the Bible says. Now, this really says a lot about Naaman here because it is not always the case that the leader of the army is highly esteemed by the king. Now, you may be thinking, well, why is that? Well, think about it. Military leaders end up gaining, and if they're successful, they end up gaining all sorts of popularity through all their exploits. And they often become more popular than the king himself. And this happened with David after he killed Goliath. Do you all remember what happened with David after he killed Goliath? All the people began praising David more than they were praising the king. David's killed his ten thousands and, David, or, and Saul his thousands. Essentially saying, David's better, more powerful than the king himself which is King Saul, then David, and then everyone else, but the people are saying, we're going to put David a notch above that. So it's not always the case that the leader of the army is highly esteemed by the king. 
Throughout history, we have various accounts of, of kings being jealous of the fame and the popularity of their military leaders at times, even becoming fearful that their military leader, their own generals, might use their power and their influence to try and take away their own throne. But what we're told of Naaman is quite the opposite. He was the captain of the host of the king of Syria, it says, and it says he was a great man with his master. As chapter 5 will go on to express, the king of Syria highly esteemed Naaman and trusted him to be completely devoted to his service. Naaman understood his position in relation to his king, and he didn't allow whatever influence he may have had among the people there in Syria to look upon his king with any ill will or any malice or any ideas, thinking that, you know what, he's got enough influence, enough backing, that he can have a coup and knock the king off his throne and take Syria for himself. Never once. Naaman was a great man, the Bible says, with his master. Notice third, we see that he is honorable. Right there in the middle of verse number one, he was a great man with his master and honorable. Now this seems to fit after you understand where he was in relationship with his king. But the idea here is that the king trusted Naaman enough to keep him in the spotlight. When some kings may have been threatened by the power and the influence of their leaders and would have been inclined to push him out into the background so no one really sees him, so his popularity doesn't soar, this king continued to show Naaman favor, and he did it publicly. All the efforts of Naaman in battle as he furthered the interests of the king of Syria were not going to be forgotten, but would in fact be rewarded. The king knew how valuable Naaman was to him, and he made sure to appreciate his valiant military leader. He was honorable. And notice fourth, Naaman's military success is directly attributed to God because it says, by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. At a time when Israel was steeped in idol worship and apostasy, God was using Syria, an enemy nation, to be his hammer of judgment upon the Israelites. As a result, favor was shown unto the armies of Syria as they had seen great success conquering many of the nations that surrounded them. This doesn't mean that Syria or Naaman were even worshiping God or even crediting God with any of their victories. But God was making use of them, a pagan nation, an idol-worshiping nation, to accomplish his will and his purposes. And notice number five, Naaman had natural qualities which made him perfectly fit for battle. He was also a mighty man in valor, the Bible says. Naaman was brave. He was fearless. He was strong. He was courageous. He was well-equipped to be the leader that the armies of Syria could all follow after and rally behind. And when you look at how the Bible describes Naaman, it's hard to wonder what he's missing. This guy's got everything, right? I mean, every little kid who dreamed about you know, what they were going to be when they grow up wanted to be a Naaman. As they're thinking about how they're going to be strong and they're going to be the leader of an army and they're going to have people follow behind them and they're going to surge into battle and be the one who's successful and, and takes the hill and stamps the, the, the flag down and declares it to be his. Every little boy was doing this on the playground. They were trying to be a Naaman. And it's hard to look at it and think, well, he's got the whole package. He's got everything, right? Except for five little words at the end of verse number one that almost cut off Naaman from his knees. He's got all of this. But he was a leper. But he was a leper. He's got it all. 
the captain of the armies of Syria, the great relationship with the king. He is treated like royalty around the king. God has allowed him to be incredibly successful in battle. He's a physical specimen on the battlefield capable of doing anything. He's probably the talk of the town. Every little boy is probably having posters of Naaman in their bedroom, motivating them to be just like him. Parents probably told their children incredible stories about the heroism of Naaman on the battlefield. Naaman had served his country so well, was held in such high regard by his king, but as great as his life was, there was a dark cloud that hovered over him. There was something in his life that not only spoiled the joy of his present, but on any and all hope for the future. And that's the sixth thing that we see, that he was a leper. And just like that, Everything else that is mentioned prior to this here in verse number one seems to fade away. What seemed to be such a great life, a life filled with one accomplishment after the next, all of a sudden doesn't sound good at all. If I asked you before reading those last five words in that verse, how many of you would want it to be said of you what it said of Naaman here in chapter five and verse number one? How many of you would raise your hand and say, absolutely, sign me up for that? Probably all of us, even though none of you, one of us, okay, thank you, Bruce. Only one of you would want to be there. I'm sure all of us are raising our hands internally. I'll take that. But when I get to that last five, five words, we're thinking, you know what? Forget it. Deal's off. I don't care about the rest of it. I don't care how good his resume looks. That last part, those last five words, no thank you. I'm perfectly fine living a humble life here without any of those things. Because that one thing, leprosy, doesn't sound good at all. And it isn't good at all. Congratulations, you have everything you've dreamed of, but you're going to die from an incurable disease. All the other accolades don't seem too exciting anymore. Naaman had everything that everyone dreamed of and the one thing that everyone avoided. Leprosy was a loathsome, incurable disease. As a result of how leprosy affected the body, Naaman was probably pretty pitiful to even look at, repulsive to look at. He was like, uh, when, when you drive on the highway and see a car accident, it never looks good, but we can't help but not look, right? You, you, everyone slows down for whatever reason, and they have to look at the scene. And it's usually a disgusting pile of mangled metal that we're looking at, and nothing good and, and nice to look at. It was probably the same with Naaman, very pitiful, very repulsive to look at. And his physical appearance was only going to continue to get worse as the disease progressed. So Naaman provides for us a picture of what each of us are by nature. When we started to read God's word, it didn't make us look good. As you open up God's word and read about what the Bible says about every single person being a sinner, all of a sudden you're not feeling too good about yourself. In fact, it reveals something that was incredibly heinous and hideous. However good and favorable we thought we were before we were saved, quickly changed as we caught a glimpse into the reality of our sinful condition. God's word doesn't make us look good. It cuts us down to where we fall flat on our faces before him. God's word doesn't paint some false picture of who we think we are and how we think we're good because of all the things that we've done and all the things we've accomplished. It shows us the reality of our sin and how it's really affected us. And the picture that we see looking at us, as it's almost like we're looking in a mirror, is not a good picture. The rose-colored glasses are gone, and what we're seeing is the real thing, and we're disgusted at what we're seeing revealed about us. 
God's word is like a mirror that shows our true condition before him and it's not pretty. Where we're quick to praise everything that we've done and all the things that we've accomplished and maybe we have a laundry list like what is mentioned here in verse number one with regards to Naaman. The word of God humbles us. It declares us to be sinful, to be corrupt, to be depraved, to be defiled. When we thought that our lives were actually going pretty good, the word of God revealed that we were lepers, that we had such a horrible, incurable condition, helplessly doomed. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. There was no medicine that we could take to, to cause us to reverse this spiritual sin, the spiritual state that we were in so that we could be saved. There was no making ourselves feel better with all the things that we had achieved because we came to, the, came to realize the words of Psalm 39, verse 5, which states, Every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Every man at his best is vanity. Empty, worthless, useless, nothing. Now, depending on when you were saved, some of you may be able to remember that day like it was yesterday. And it's incredibly humbling when God shows you your true nature, when he shows you just who you were and how undeserving you are of him showing you any favor at all. And everything you thought about yourself just comes crashing down and it's almost as if your whole world falls apart. Even if you knew you weren't perfect, which most people are going to admit that they're not perfect, but a lot of people will not admit that they're not good. Most people think that they're good and that they can be good enough to get to heaven. And even if you're willing to admit you're not perfect, again, you're not thinking that you're that bad because you can always compare yourself to someone else that's worse off than you. Until God holds up the mirror of his word, which shows us that we are worse than even our, our worst expectation. Psalm 3, verse 10. Psalm 310, or I'm sorry, not Psalm, but Romans 310 and 11, as well as verse 23, says this. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. And then verse 23, probably very familiar to all of us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this is the realization, this is the mirror that God has held up to us and said, listen, not a single person is good. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one is seeking after God because we're all thinking we're good enough to do this life on our own and to be good enough to work our way into heaven. And he says, for those of you that think that, the rug is going to be pulled out from underneath you because he says, every single one of us have sinned and therefore come short of God's glory because God's glory requires absolute and complete perfection, which not a single person will ever meet. Because... You come to verses like John 3, 36, which states, Jesus says, And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Those that do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, Jesus himself says, you're not going to see everlasting life in heaven. But your reality is that the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon you. And then we read in Romans 6, 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. This is the why. Because even if you've only done one thing wrong your entire life, which if we're willing to admit, we've done more than one. But even that one thing, which no one has a hard time admitting that they're not perfect. And one thing, one wrong action, one wrong thought is enough to condemn you, the Bible says, to eternal separation in a place called hell. The wages of that one sin, the Bible says, is death. Now we've gone and we've added all sorts of our own personal guilt to that. 
But God's word shows us that we are all not only unfit to be in his presence, but because of our sin, we all deserve eternal damnation. We may have a good position here in this life. We might have a good job. We might have a great family. We might live in a really nice house. We might have great friends. We might even be greatly respected in our community. By human standards, we've done many great things that cause us to appear honorable and influential in the sight of those around us. But how do we appear before God? How do we look in the eyes of God? You may have everything that Naaman had there as far as how well you're perceived in the eyes of everyone else. Great military leader, great man in the eyes of his king, honorable, mighty man in valor. You have everything that you could ever dream of. But when God looks at you, he sees those five words that are, end at, that are at the end of verse number one. But he is a leper. He has an incurable condition that can't be saved and can't be reversed by any of the accolades he has achieved prior to that. Nothing can be done. Even if everyone who knew you loved you, even if at your funeral there was only standing room in the sanctuary, was it all that worth it living apart from God? Does God overlook your sin and take into consideration all of your earthly accomplishments to make you the object of his favor because of how good you lived here on this earth? Well, the reality is that he can't. He can't overlook sin or else he would be unjust. And therefore, sin has to be punished. So when God looks on us, he sees us in all of our sin, people who are guilty according to the holy standard that he has set, which requires perfection. People who are unworthy of being in his presence. And in this, we are all once in a similar state as Naaman. For when Naaman was a leper, he was unclean. The Bible says he was unfit for God's presence. There was a vast difference between Naaman's circumstances and Naaman's condition. And it may be the same with us today, that our circumstances may be different than our condition. But our circumstances will never do a thing to change our sinful condition. In many ways, every single one of us are born a spiritual leper. We may achieve all sorts of accolades like Naaman throughout the course of our lives, but we're just waiting for our spiritual condition of leprosy to eternally separate us from God when we breathe our last breath here on this earth. We often make the assumption that everyone in church is saved, right? Otherwise, why would they be in church? But the truth is that there may be someone here today that has not believed on Jesus as their Savior. Perhaps you're here today, and you've never looked at yourself through the eyes of Scripture and you've never seen the way that God looks at you. Maybe you've been thinking that you've been good enough because you've attended church. Maybe you think you're going to be good enough because you don't have a good family and you try to do good and you try to help people out. But have you seen the wretchedness of your sin? Do you understand that even one sin eternally condemns you to hell? Do you understand that it stands between you and a holy God condemning you to eternal damnation? Are you aware that regardless of how much good you do in the eyes of the world, no amount of works will ever be good enough to earn your salvation? Have you understood the very clear message of the Bible that teaches that works of the law will never be enough? We read in Galatians 2.16, it says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ... Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh 
be justified. Galatians 2.16, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You're not going to ever be saved by good works because in the reality of it, there is no good works. Every good that we think we're doing is actually tainted by sin and all of it falls so miserably short of achieving God's glory and earning salvation. We're also told in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And notice this, it says, And that not of yourselves. It had nothing to do with you. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No one is ever going to be able to boast that they earned their salvation. Heaven is not going to be full of prideful people that said, well, look what I did to get here. Oh, yeah? It's not going to be as good as what I've done because, man, I did so much on earth to get my spot here. It's never going to happen. Heaven is not going to be full of prideful people because not a single person is going to get there through their own works or through their own effort. It is only going to be full of humble people who realize that they're there based on the working of only one person, and that was Jesus Christ and him alone. And through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work, that is the gift of God, the Bible says. That is the means as far as how we are, how we are going to be saved. We also are told in Titus 3, verse 5, it says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Jesus Christ is the only means that we're ever going to be saved. Do you understand that your spiritual condition is one which cannot be fixed through any effort of your own? It's not going to be fixed on anything that you can do. It's only when you can accept this really dreadful verdict that you are helpless on your own. It's only when you can accept that, that in that helpless condition, you can actually start to see a glimmer of hope. God speaks of this disease of leprosy, I believe, to serve as a picture of man's helpless condition. Back in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, God instructed Moses how to identify leprosy and what to do when someone was infected by it. When a person was found to have leprosy, they were to be separated from everyone. And any time someone approached, the person who was infected by this dreadful disease was supposed to call out, unclean, unclean. And this idea was to warn anyone that came anywhere close to them because leprosy was so contagious that they didn't want anyone else to be contaminated. So they isolated lepers into their own little colony on the outskirts of the towns and villages so that they could be by themselves away from the company and community of everyone else. And interestingly enough, God gave instructions on how a person could, uh, could be reintegrated into society should they be healed from leprosy, even though there was no cure for this dreadful disease. So he gave a condition on how they can be reintegrated, even though there's no cure. He instructed that when a person was healed from leprosy, that he would be ceremonially purified, which is a picture of the cleansing that we receive through the atonement of Jesus Christ as we believe on him who died for us. We also see that it was not a physician who would declare the person to be clean, but the high priest, the man who had leprosy and was healed, had to show himself to the priest, and the priest would examine him and declare him to be clean, and then he would be able to reintegrate into, this, into society. So it's not a doctor that checks him over, it's a priest, it's the high priest, which again, points to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, who is the one who ultimately declares us whole through, the faith, uh, through our faith in his finished work. Being that there is no cure for leprosy and knowing that God had made it possible for those healed from leprosy to rejoin society, 
we understand that any person that was ever healed from this dreadful disease would have had to have been healed by God's intervention. It's only going to be happening through God because there's no cure, there's no, you know, it doesn't just wear off after a certain time. And yet God made a provision for those that are healed. So he's essentially laying the groundwork for what he's going to do. Heal those that have leprosy. Now since the wages of our sin is eternal death, the only means of us being saved would be through God's intervention. Anyone affected with leprosy was cut off from the rest of the congregation, being put outside the camp in their own little colony, which serves as a picture of every single sinner being separated from the presence of God. So much of what we see with regards to Naaman's condition relates directly to the spiritual condition in which every single one of us was born. It wasn't by coincidence that God happened to, God included a plan for those healed from leprosy to rejoin the congregation. It wasn't coincidence that the first specific recorded miracle of Christ in the book of Matthew happens to be him healing a man from leprosy. God was showing us a picture of his mercy and his grace and how a provision was made for sinners to be reconciled to him even though we were hopelessly lost. Now there are several details that I'd like to focus on as we draw to a close here this morning. And I want to notice, first of all, leprosy starts almost unnoticed. Leprosy starts almost unnoticed. Now the way that it's described in Leviticus chapter 13, leprosy is kind of hard to identify. Unless you're really looking for it, you're probably not going to find it and see it. It starts off slow that you wouldn't even pay that much attention to it at first. It gives little to no warning as to how serious an issue it really is. It's, is. Is this not the same when it comes to sin entering into our lives? Think about when Eve first took of the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Did she really think that it was going to be that bad when she took of that fruit? Did she really think that her and Adam sinning was going to send a shockwave into the rest of human, human history and humanity by taking that fruit? Think of every time you sin. Do you really think the consequences are going to be as bad as they end up being? When you consider the sin, it seems almost disproportionate compared to the eternal consequences that follow. It was a small infraction when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. For crying out loud, they just took of a fruit. Right? I mean, how bad is that? That tiny little infraction doomed humanity from that point forward, sent a shockwave of death that passed upon every single human from that point forth. Taking of a fruit. That's it. But God had specifically told them, of all the trees that are in the garden, which we don't even know how many there are, there are probably enough for them to live off of the rest of their days, which would have been eons, without even coming anywhere near the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One tree is off limits, and that's it. Now we have picture books that kind of depict the whole thing with maybe three trees in the garden. This one you can eat of, that one you can eat of, this is the one that you don't eat of. Almost as if like it's unfair. It's like they're walking by the tree every single day while they're grabbing fruit from another tree. You're like, man, that looks awfully good, awfully tempting. We don't know how big the garden is. Honestly, the garden is probably so vast that they, were, they could spend their entire life never anywhere near that part of the garden, which they don't even speak of, where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. And yet, they find themselves 
So close to the one tree that God has specifically said, this is the one tree, the one tree in all this massive expanse that I've given. The one tree to avoid. They find themselves so close that they can actually see that it is pleasant to the eyes. There was already an inner turmoil going on there. And we're not going to get into the depths of that. But that single sin sent a shockwave throughout all humanity. The longer you're saved, the less you consider the severity of your sin. And this is why people classify and even downplay the effects of sin. According to our justice system, stealing a paperclip isn't the same as stealing a car. Right? You're not going to go to jail for stealing a paperclip, at least not in most places. But if you steal a car, cops are going to come searching for you. Probably going to spend some time behind, behind bars. But in the eyes of God, is it any different if you stole a paperclip, which has almost little to no monetary value, as opposed to you stealing a car, which could anywhere be between five to fifty, hundred thousand dollars, depending on the kind of car you're stealing? Is it any different in the eyes of God? It's no different. Sin is sin. Stealing is stealing. Whether you've stolen a paperclip or you've robbed a bank, it's stealing. And in the eyes of God, it is punishable by eternal condemnation. Now, we've downplayed that based on how our justice system and law and order works, but the same, it's, it's all the same with God. The unsaved, though, don't think of their sin as deserving of punishment or even opening them up to eternal damnation because they don't view sin as being that bad, at least not every sin. Yeah, some sins, oh, maybe I'll absolutely say that that person's definitely going to hell because of what he's done, but you know what, I've, I've only done some you know, minor infractions, so... Really, I'm doing better off than that person. So I think I'm doing pretty good. It starts almost unnoticed. But notice second that leprosy is inherited. Leprosy is inherited. Leprosy was a, is a communicable disease. It poisons the blood and it spreads from parents to their children. Just as our sin nature spreads. Romans 5.12 tells us, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, Adam. And it says, And death by sin... And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. There was a sin nature that passed down to you from your parents, which ultimately came from our first parents, Adam and Eve. A sin nature. No one can escape this. Before you were even able to, to talk, to speak, to do anything, you already had a sin nature within you. And if you've had any children or spent any time around children, you see that this is evident even before they say a single word. Some of these children are like little devils. They, they know what they should be doing, and they're going and purposely trying to do the opposite. And I've shared it before. You don't have to teach a child to do something that is wrong. You have to teach them to do right. You have to teach them to be respectful. You have to teach them to be kind and compassionate and, and generous. You don't have to teach them to be bad. I didn't have to raise my boys and say, okay, listen, mommy and daddy are going to tell you to clean your room, but what we want you to do is to mess it up as much as possible and ignore everything that we tell you, that we tell you to do. We don't have to teach them to be bad. They're grown with this inherent sin nature that leads them to have a bent towards sin. They're leaning that way anyways. And this is true of every single member of the human race. David wrote in Psalm 51 verse 5, he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, 
And in sin did my mother conceive me. Every single person is this way. No one is born spiritually pure. Sin is passed on to each and every one of us from our parents. And since human nature was corrupted from the days of the Garden of, e uh, Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, that corruption has seeped its pollution throughout the entirety of the human race. It starts almost unnoticed. It is inherited. And, and third, leprosy works nearly imperceptibly. Leprosy works nearly imperceptibly. Leprosy isn't accompanied with too much pain, at least not initially. It's not until it reveals its horrible effect that it really starts to get painful. And sin is the same way where it starts subtle, almost innocent, before it gets really bad. And this leaves us thinking that it isn't that harmful. Even though it is plaguing our hearts from the inside. It, it isn't until a person is born again, until he trusts in Jesus as his Savior, that he realizes how bad he's actually been and how bad he is from the inside out. It's only when we start to, to see sin for what it really is that we understand how powerful the grip of sin really was in our lives. It's, it works nearly imperceptibly. And fourth, leprosy spreads quickly. Leprosy spreads quickly, even though it starts, as Leviticus 13 and 14 tell us, with a small spot on the skin, it gradually increases in size until the entire body is affected by it. Leprosy actually attacks inwardly as much as it attacks outwardly, eating away at the bones and the marrow. And this is how sin attacks us. It corrupts every part of our being so that from head to toe, we're completely polluted. No part of us can escape sin's grip and defilement. Our heart, our mind, our, all of it are equally corrupted, which is why Paul said in Romans 7, 18, he said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. There's nothing, he said, from head to toe. There's nothing good in me at all. Because he says, my sin has so corrupted and polluted me. And notice number five. Leprosy is highly contagious. Leprosy is highly contagious. It is inherited inwardly, but it is contagious outwardly. And this is why those with leprosy had to call out unclean to anyone that approached and why they would have to be essentially quarantined to their own little colonies on the outskirts of town. Sin is not only, inherently in, is not only inherited inwardly, but it is also outwardly contagious. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, it tells us, it says, evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil communications corrupt good manners. In Proverbs 4, verses 14 to 15, it also says, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. Why does it tell us this? It tells us this because it's highly contagious. The more you're around it, the more you're going to embrace it. I don't care how much willpower you think you have, the more you put yourselves into situations where you know you're going to be tempted to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing, eventually you're going to give in. It is highly contagious. And notice sixth, leprosy is loathsome. Leprosy is loathsome. Knowing how bad leprosy affects the body, it would be difficult to look upon someone in such an awful state. 
And since there was no cure, there was no doctor who could minister to those who had leprosy. And thus, there's really nothing that could be done at all to tend to the wounds and the sores that afflicted the person's body. So they didn't even do anything. No bandages, no wraps, no gauze, no nothing. Why? Literally could not stop. Literally could not help prevent it at all. So oftentimes, they just left the people completely unbandaged to have these nasty, disgusting wounds visibly seen for everyone that passed by. Imagine how dreadful it must have been with uncovered and untreated wounds all over the body. Certainly not a pleasant sight to look at. And all of this serves as a figure of really how repulsive we are as sinners in the sight of God. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 describes it this way. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. It's speaking of God. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. We are disgusting in our sin that we don't even deserve God to look on us in that state. And notice number seven. Leprosy was dealt with by banishment. Leprosy was dealt with by banishment. No leper was allowed to be in the congregation of Israel and it didn't matter who you were. In Numbers chapter 12, we read about Moses' sister Miriam getting leprosy and being banished. She's the sister of the one leading the entire nation. She gets it and she's banished because they don't care who you are. You're gone. In 2 Kings chapter 15, we read about God smiting King Azariah with leprosy. The king. And the Bible says that he lived out the rest of his days basically in isolation. Don't care who you are. Sister to the leader of the nation, king over the nation, leprosy, you're gone. It was a visible sign of how God regards the sinner because sin shuts us out from God's presence. And notice number eight, leprosy was shameful. Leprosy was shameful. Aside from the horrific physical state it would leave people in and being excluded from just about all fellowship except for those who also had leprosy, which, let's be honest, you get tired of seeing the same people and their disgusting state, which you have as well. But the law also specified in Leviticus 13 and verse number 45, it says, And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent and his head bare And he shall put a covering upon his upper lip and shall cry, unclean, unclean. As if it's not bad enough that you have this wretched, incurable disease. Everywhere you go, everyone is going to know that you're a leper based on how you're supposed to dress. You can't even dress nice. His clothes, it says, are supposed to be rent. What a picture of misery, right? Who would want to be this way? And that's the point. That's the point. It should be miserable. God was showing just how much sin has marred the perfect image in which every single one of us have been created. We should look disgusting. We shouldn't be able to dress it up and try and hide all the wounds underneath us. It should be blatantly obvious to everyone how disgusting we are because of our sin. It should be shameful. And notice number nine. Leprosy was incurable. Leprosy was incurable. There was no medicine. There was no treatment that would cure it. In the same way, there is no human cure for sin. Jeremiah 13, verse 23 states, Jeremiah 13, 23, it says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? 
then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. In other words, what he's saying is there is nothing you can do to change even a single thing about you, about your condition. However, what may be beyond the power of man is possible with God. Where science, where modern medicine, where technology all stand completely helpless to change even an ounce of our sinful condition, there remains hope in the power and in the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 7.25 it states, Wherefore he, speaking of God, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What an encouragement. No matter how disgusting, how humiliating, how wretched, how vile, how horrible we are in our sin. The Bible says he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. You may have been the most disgusting, the chief of sinners, as Paul refers to himself. But the moment you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you are saved and you are eternally saved. It goes on to say, in 1 John 1, 7, it says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7, The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. The only the only, only, only cure for sin is Jesus Christ. Every one of us are helpless on our own, but hope remains through the wonder-working power of our Savior. Now, as we close our time here this morning, I'd like to ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes. <clears throat> there may be someone here today that has not trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. If there is someone here today that does not know for sure that you're going to be in heaven one day, I'd like to extend an invitation for you to believe in Jesus Christ today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus... And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved immediately and will be saved forever. The Bible tells us that this is a one-time event. All you have to do is to ask Jesus to save you. No sin that you commit beyond that is going to offset, revoke, or change the promise that God has made to you as you come to him in faith. You will not be perfect from this moment forward, but from the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, his righteousness will cover you. So that when our Heavenly Father looks upon us, it is not as a mangled mess of sin and wounds, but it is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the glory that we have through our faith in him that what he will see. If there is someone here today that doesn't know Jesus and wants to, let me encourage you to pray with me quietly to yourself. A simple prayer. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner 
and I know that I deserve to go to hell. But I believe that you loved me enough to die on the cross, to be buried and rise from the grave to pay for all my sins. Please save me so that I will be in heaven with you when I die and have everlasting life in your presence. Amen. If you prayed this prayer here this morning, would you please come and tell me, not right this second, even if it's just a whisper, let me know that you prayed this prayer. The Bible tells us, as it says there in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And later on in Romans 10, 13, it says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the Lord knows each and every one of you. He knows how weak and frail we all are. And so he does not make it complicated for anyone who is able to understand, understand the reality of a sin, understand his need for a savior, and call upon the one and only one that can offer freedom from the bondage of our sin and eternal salvation, Jesus Christ. At the moment that person does, he is marked off by the Holy Spirit as a child of God now and forevermore, beginning his eternal life to one day enjoy all of that in the presence of God in heaven. If you prayed this prayer here this morning, let me just congratulate you on the, one of the best days of your life. It's been said that the greatest day of the Christian's life is his last. Because as he closes his eyes here on this life, he opens them to behold his Savior. The most important decision that you'll ever make in this life is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. So if you prayed this prayer, please let me know. Lord, we come before you, and we know that every single one of us, Lord, much like Naaman, no matter how good our lives have been and how much we've achieved, Lord, our condition, our condition was doomed from the moment we were born, even conceived. But Lord, I'm thankful that you loved us more than we've loved ourselves, that you sent us your only begotten son to offer atonement through his finished work as he went to the cross and died on our behalf, was buried and rose victoriously from the grave, giving us victory over all of our sin as we put our faith and trust in him. Lord, may we all be able to rejoice in the everlasting life that is offered freely to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Lord, thank you for offering us this wonderful gift. May we appreciate you all the more for all that you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.